Hello and welcome to ASTCT Talks, the official podcast of the American Society for Transplantation and Cellular Therapy. We chat with industry leaders from all areas of the blood and marrow transplantation and cellular therapy field, including doctors, physician assistants, pharmacists, nurses, administrators, social workers, and more. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Hi, everyone. Thank you for joining us for another episode of ASTCT Talks. My name is Dr. Rahul Banerjee. I'm an assistant professor of medicine at the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Center in Seattle, Washington, and a member of the ASTCT's content committee. Today, we'll be speaking about beyond BCMA, using talquetamab for relapse of refractory myeloma. It is my privilege to be interviewing Dr. Amrita Krishnan here uh, as our uh, faculty expert about this. Dr. Krishnan is director of the Briskin Multiple Myeloma Center at the City of Hope Comprehensive Cancer Center. She's also a professor of medicine in the Department of Hematology and Hematopoietic Cell Transplantation. She has been a principal investigator on numerous key trials in myeloma over the last years and decades, and she actually is senior author on the Monumental One trial of Talquetamab that was recently published in the Journal of Medicine, leading to the drug's approval earlier this year. Dr. Krishnan, pleasure to have you on the podcast with us. Thanks for taking time to, to, to speak with us. Thank you, Rahul. I'm, I'm happy to be here and excited to talk about this drug, which is another great option for our patients with relapse disease. Great. So we'll delve into it. Thank you, Dr. Krishnan Amrita, if I may. So, you know, as you're alluding to, I feel like for the last five years, almost everything about immunotherapy and myeloma has been focused on BCMA, B-cell maturation antigen, hence the title of this podcast, Beyond BCMA. Can you tell us a bit more about GPRC5D as a target? Uh, so GPRC is a receptor that's primarily expressed in plasma cells, but as we kind of delve into the monumental study, you'll see some of the other targets, um, specifically that it's expressed in hard keratinized tissue. So that means, for example, nails. We, we also see it in um, hair follicles. Um, it's kind of the major things that we uh, think about as targets. And when we talk about off-tumor on target toxicities, uh, you can certainly see that as Wonderful. So this is very helpful. And I think, you know, as you're well aware, and the reader may know, there are both bispecific antibodies that have targeted GPRC5D, for example, talquetamab and ferimtamig. There are CAR T therapies that are under investigation uh, targeting GPRC5D, you know, for example, MCAR H109, that was published by the Dr. Malencody and colleagues at Mernos von Kettering uh, uh, a couple of years ago, or maybe this year even. Let's focus on bispecifics, let's focus on talquetamab in particular, and let's focus on the Monumental One study that was published last year in the Journal of Medicine. Can you tell us a bit more about this study? Uh, so Monumental One was a phase one study, and it looked at two uh, separate dosing cohorts of GPRC. You know, initially, like many of the bispecifics, it started with an IV formulation, but rapidly, you know, once the sub-Q seemed to show similar efficacy, Really, the focus has been on the sub-Q dosing. And there was a weekly dosing cohort and a bi-weekly dosing cohort, which I think in part will lead to further discussion, I'm sure, in regards to some of the confusion of how do you dose it, how in the step-up dosing, et cetera, that I'm sure we'll talk about. But overall, um, they had um, 232 patients enrolled who got talquetamab. They'd had a meeting of six prior lines of therapy, so pretty heavily pretreated. 79% triple class refractory and 30% had pentadrug refractory disease. Um, 
and you know, maybe we'll get into a little bit the IMS update because we also looked at patients who had had prior BCMA directed therapy. To your point, moving beyond BCMA, but going back to Monumental One, you, uh, um, overall, you can say what was exciting to us was certainly uh, the uh, overall response rate, um, which was about. Um, was like close to seventy percent, I think, right? I was. Yeah, I'm trying to. I guess because they put the IV and the sub Q together, so it's a little bit. So the overall response is between sixty eight to seventy two percent, and really was the same between the week weekly and bi weekly dosing, which I think led to many of us using bi weekly dosing, certainly in clinical practice. Um, if in terms of toxicities, I think that's where. I th some of the unique aspects of GPRC come in. So not unique was cytokine release, right? Happened in about 77% of patients. Most of it was during the step-up dosing, about 81%. Though about 30% of patients had recurrent CRS um, during you know, cycle one mostly. Um, and that's again, similar to many of the other bispecifics that we see. But I think the unique toxicities we saw were really the 67% of patients had skin-related toxicities and 63% had dysgeusia. So that's something I think fairly unique to this target. Um, and when you talk about skin tox, it was really rash in most patients, grade one, grade two, though there were about 16% who had a grade three rash and also uh, nail toxicities. So that can be pitting of the nails, it can be breaking of the nails, it can be actually loss of the nails. Absolutely so. This is very, very helpful. And then in terms of uh, moving, as you alluded to, we'll go right into that topic. So as you alluded to, the monumental one looked at a variety of dosing schedules, also looked at IV versus sub-Q. We assume sub-Q, as you have alluded to, the package insert allows for it to be dosed with, you know, two step-up doses, a full treatment dose, and 0.4 or 400, uh, 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 you know, mics per kick in this case per week, or, you know, three step-up doses, including 0.4 onto 0.8, and then 0.8 every two weeks thereafter. It's awesome that there are options for our patients. It's really confusing, not just for the doctors who are considering using this at their local practices, but even here at Fred Hutch, we already have it. How do we do it? So maybe I'll start by asking you, how are you implementing commercial talk quite a map for your patients logistically in terms of dosing and scheduling? I, I'm curious to hear what other centers, and when we get when I think at Ash, there'll be a lot of discussion about that too. Mm -hmm. I mean, we tend to be very constitutionalists and in part because of our pharmacists and that we do follow the label. And so we've ended up with the, uh, you know, th three step up doses before we can go on to the biweekly dosing. Now, having said that, do I think that some people are doing it a little differently and abbreviating that step up dosing and then moving to the biweekly? Probably we haven't made that leap yet. Uh, I'm curious to hear if, if what you're doing at, uh, the hutch. I will. I may answer your question with a question first, and then I'll go through. This is fascinating. Um, are you typically admitting most of your patients for the step-up dosing through the first treatment dose, or you have an outpatient hospital-style approach to it? Right now, we are still admitting patients, but we're rapidly in a workflow process to be able to deliver this as an outpatient because we obviously have a day hospital and we have 
um, a hotel on grounds so that, you know, that is certainly our plan. Agreed, which is fascinating. And I think it came down for us that I uh, was not privy to this at Fred Hutchinson Cancer Center, but I think the question was how do we, we are also admitting everyone moving towards outpatient, but I think the PNT committee took one look at the two proposals that we want whatever, whatever is a shorter length of stay we want. And so we are starting with the two step up dosing, two step up doses, the first treatment dose at the point four. And then our plan is actually move to point eight at cycle two day one without, um, if someone's low risk of CRS no active CRS, just doing it in the outpatient setting. I know some centers that are doing mixing and matching point four, and I think a cycle one day 15 moving to point eight. And so it's a, as you alluded to, it'll be fascinating to see at ASH what happens. And I feel like we can't even figure out how to dose carfilzomib or ortezomib properly, I feel like years after their approval. So I feel like there may be a lot of heterogeneity with taquetamab for years to come. Um, are you planning to keep patients on taquetamab indefinitely, or are there some patients that you may consider stopping treatment down the line if they are in a CR, MRD negative, or are these spacing things out? I think spacing things out is really is is the key part of this drug. And to be honest, it may be less response mediated than really the dyskusia. In terms mm, of management point. of dyskusia, I, I know you alluded to earlier that we talk about management of some of the toxicities. You know, we've certainly tried things, biotine, steroid mouthwashes, hard candy, artificial saliva. You know, for patients who have dry mouth, perhaps it has a little bit of an effect because obviously taste depends a lot on, on saliva as well. But for most patients, really, ultimately, you end up with either dose reduction or dose delay strategies. So I think that may be what first drives us in regards to um, dose modifications. And subsequently, yes, I do think obviously most of us would like to do fixed dosing and many of the future trials are sort of fixed dose. The question is, you know, what duration of therapy before you'll be comfortable stopping drug? Uh, and I think that remains to be seen. Agreed. That's an excellent point. So then we can kind of pivot to the toxicities. Now we've talked about the efficacy. Um, well, I guess maybe before I go there briefly, you mentioned uh, talquetamab and BCMA exposed patients. Um, any tips, red flags, yellow flags for the audience there? You think that's a pretty good strategy to pursue in someone for whom BCMA CAR T therapy or BCMA bispecific has failed? So that so I think that pro, not all prior BCMA therapies are created equal. And I think that's the real message. So we had a poster at IMS and we looked at, um, if you look at a, all prior BCMA subgroups together, the overall response rate was pretty comparable, 64 to 73%, except for patients who had, had prior BCMA bispecific antibody therapy. There, the overall response rate was only 40%, 47%, which is, you know, less I think about the issue, therefore, about BCMA going to GPRC as a target and more about T cell health. And I think more and more as we talk about sequencing, many of us feel that going directly from one bispecific to another bispecific, you probably are going to compromise your efficacy. And certainly you also, your duration of response is far less when you do that. That's a fascinating point. I actually had not seen that poster. Dr. Krishna was referring to the IMS meeting, International Myeloma Society meeting last month in Athens in September. Uh, that's a really good point. You're right. I think we as myeloma physicians are so 
gravitating towards target and the CD38, BCMA, you know, GPRC5D, FCRH5, but you're right, it's often not the target that matters as much as the T cells. So that's very helpful. Um, and then pivoting to our final question here, you've already kind of spoken about this briefly with the dysgeusia and the derm toxicities. Interestingly, I think, you know, many myeloma physicians might not intrinsically have seen these types of toxicities recently, but for readers of this podcast or listeners of this podcast at ASTCT Talks, you know, uh, many of you are used to uh, dealing with, you know, taste related or skin related toxicities in your patient with GVHD, you know, whether it be acute or chronic. And so, you know, we may uh, pick all of your brains collectively as a, on the myeloma side as our kind of cross-pollinate myeloma and translate figure out how best to manage these symptoms. You alluded briefly to the biotin, the steroid mouthwash and so forth for taste. How about for skin toxicities, nail toxicities, any tips that you would give to the reader who's planning to, uh, I keep saying reader, to the listener who's planning to implement Alquetamab at their site? So the skin talks is actually much easier to manage because certainly uh, first usually what you see is some desquamation on the palms and soles. You can use emollients, you can use steroid cream there and that seems to work pretty successfully. People often get a rash, it's very steroid responsive. In fact, they amended the study to allow um, even up to grade three steroid responsive rash um, to continue on therapy. So I think steroids work well for rash and that you can comfortably redose. Nail talks, I mean, certain things you can do at the beginning, clear nail polish, you know, to help with brittle nails, prevent splitting and cracking of nails. We do tell pe um, people, you know, down the road to avoid artificial nails, you know, those kind of things mm -hmm. because the nail beds, beds are gonna lift off and just to try and minimize other risks of infection, et cetera. This is very helpful. I've heard people talk about nail thickener or nail thickening. I guess it's a thing as well, which I didn't know that was a thing until today. So I've learned a lot about this as we go. I'm um, going back just to the steroid question. And to be clear, you're referring to topical steroids or you're saying oral prednisone for the, the grade two or grade three rashes, for example? So, you know, fortunately, grade three rash is pretty less common, right? In the initial trial, Agreed. it was about 16% of patients. There, you would definitely, I think, use systemic steroids and patients respond pretty quickly and pretty well. You know, the grade one, grade two rash, I think it's treating physician discretion. And, you know, we've tended to certainly grade one, get away with just topical steroids. Which makes sense and absolutely makes sense. And it's interesting to see, I'm sure it'll be real world data, you know, coming out, you know, does that make a difference? Theoretically, I feel like as you remember well, there was a time where everyone was terrified about steroids with any of these immune targeting agents, CAR-T or bispecifics, and clearly it's more complicated than that because we actually use dexamethasone as a pre-med with, you know, the, the step-up dosing for these things. So steroids are not a binary yes or no. I think as you're alluding to, it's what works best for your patient. And then the last point I did want to make, because I spent you know, a lot of time harping on the side effects, but I think the positive thing is the infection profile with mm. GPRC targeting seems to be much Good more point. favorable, right? So infection was seen in about 47% of patients. We had no COVID-19 related deaths. So you know, if you have to sort of differentiate which bispecific you're going to use, that may be part of your equation then in terms of a patient who just had recurrent life-threatening infections with prior therapies, perhaps you might be swayed more to using a, a GPRC-directed therapy. That's a brilliant point. Yeah, and I think at, at ASCO, the Dolaria from Vanderbilt presented some data that I think was trimmed too. Even if you do talquetamide plus DARA, potentially the B cells aren't as affected. 
Um, maybe I can close with a question that I cannot answer myself because I haven't actually made up my mind yet. And I need to figure out by two Tuesdays from now, my first patient is cycle two day one of commercial talquetamab. Are you then not giving IVIG prophylaxis for these patients or you are? I, I still try to hedge all my bets. I mean, actually, 87% <laughs> of patients in Monumental 1 had hypogamma. You know, we obviously left it fairly broad if you were going to give IVIG or not. And, you know, I think there still are some people out there who, again, are very pure as constitutionalists or who followed, well, they haven't had an infection, so I'm not going to give it. I guess I tend to fall on the other side of the court and say, it's I'm going to give it because I'd rather give it and avoid any mitigating risk factors that I can. Agreed. Agreed. I'm with you. You know, I think it was a recent Twitter poll, like, is there even equipoise to give IVIG or not anymore? It's difficult to say, but yeah, I think I am uh, planning to give it maybe not as much to everybody as you're alluding to, maybe not even as commonly and maybe only after having infections, but I think that is a real signal. Um, well, wonderful, Dr. Krishna. Thank you again for taking the time to do this. I think Talquetamab is an exciting new drug in myoma. And I think, as she alluded to, we're going to have a ton of real-world evidence coming out. In addition to the clinical trials, I should add, there's a clinical trial, the Talisman study of supportive care for the toxicity that we alluded to. But even just in terms of how are people using this drug in real time, how are they loading inpatient, outpatient, for how long, the uh, time, you know, fixed duration therapy or not, that we'll definitely hear more about in coming months, coming years. Thank you again, Dr. Krishnan, for your time. And thank you, everyone, for listening. This has been another episode of ASTCT Talks. Have a good day. Thank you for listening to this episode of ASTCT Talks. Never miss an episode. Subscribe and provide reviews wherever you listen to podcasts. To learn more about ASTCT, find us on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, or visit ASTCT.org.